Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From my kitchen table somewhere in the Delaware Valley, this is the podcast we like to call The Pod Couple. I'm Phil John Ficaro, columnist for The Intelligencer. J.D. Mullane, my sidekick and columnist for the Bucks County Courier Times, is on vacation, but I'm not flying solo today. My guest is Marianne V. Scott, a Doylestown resident and teacher's aide at Groveland Elementary School who authored a book titled An Eight-Year Goodbye, a memoir. It's about her late father Samuel's battle with the incurable progressive brain disorder that took his life in 2014 at age 93. The book also details the emotional toll his illness had on her and her family, who served as his caregivers for many years. Marianne, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Phil. Uh, According to the Alzheimer's Association, more than 6 million Americans have this disease, including 280,000 Pennsylvanians at least 65 years old. One in three seniors dies from Alzheimer's, and it kills more Americans than breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. Last year, more than 11 million Americans provided unpaid care for Alzheimer's patients valued at nearly $257 billion, with a B, dollars. 83% of the help provided to older adults with Alzheimer's in America comes from family members like you, friends, other paid caregivers. Those folks were a major reason why you wrote this book, correct? Yes, they were. I was hoping... I was hoping to be able to help anybody that's going through this. Having been through this horrible journey, I knew how lonely it was and how difficult it was. And I thought that if I could write something that would make people feel not so alone on this journey, um, I would be serving a purpose. So that was the whole reason for writing this. You know, have you heard from other caregivers of folks with Alzheimer's who've read your book and found the message beneficial? I have. I've heard some from some people on my Instagram account who have said, thank you for saying that it was okay to feel guilty or it was okay to feel impatient or it was okay to feel angry, not angry at the person, just angry at the disease and for how it's disrupted everyone's life and just the emotions that you feel for being human, um, wanting to care for your loved one, but just not knowing how. So I've had a lot of responses from people just thanking me for making them feel normal. You know, you in our conversations, you've told me about your dad, you know, a, a tough as nails, bronze star and purple heart recipient, former union welder, uh, past owner and operator of a 158-acre tomato farm in Mount Holly, mm-hmm. New Jersey. So, folks, if, if you've had Campbell's tomato soup sometime in your life, uh, you've tasted Marianne's father's Jersey tomatoes uh, yep. as Campbell's was a customer. Uh, Marianne, he was a guy's guy. Right. But after he got Alzheimer's, there was a point when he couldn't distinguish dog treats from human snacks, you told me. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that specifically and, and how the disease changed your dad. 
So that incident in particular, um, I had gone grocery shopping with him. And while I was there, I thought, let me pick up some dog treats for my brother's dogs. And I wasn't going to be seeing my brother for a little bit. So I left them at my dad's house. And I said, next time you see Sam, who's my brother's also named Sam, uh, make sure you give him these for his dog. And my dad said, okay. Well, the next day, my brother called me laughing hysterically on the phone. And I said, what happened? And he said, I just got off the phone with dad and he was raving about these new snacks that you bought him. So I said, oh, what were they? And my dad said, well, I don't know, but the box says snossages. And he said there was a picture of a dog on the front. My brother immediately told my dad they were dog snacks and to throw them away. And he was laughing. And and I write a chapter in my book called If You Don't Laugh, You'll Cry. Because you would cry over something like that if you didn't try to find the humor in it. But um, yes, as you said, he was reduced to that. Mm -hmm. Um, There were many things that he was reduced to that were so painful to watch. Um, Not being able to tie his own shoes. Um, A man that was so particular about the way he looked. Every hair was always in place. And, you know, he just everything looked perfect. And at the end, you know, his hygiene had gone, he was, his hair was never combed, he forgot to take a shower. So it, it, that's what it reduced him to. It was very painful to watch. Talk a bit about the impact the caregiving had on y- your family's life, not just you and, and your immediate family, but your brother and, 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 and other family members who pitched in to, to help you. And you, you guys were washing and preparing meals and, and, yeah. and just, you know, doing everything for him. I mean, he was a widower. And right. uh, uh, talk a little bit about the, the impact of that uh, on your life. Okay, so th- first and foremost, thank God for my brother. Um, the two of us worked as a team. We were amazing together. Um, so we came up with a care plan that I was going to go a couple days a week to care for the bill paying and wash- doing his laundry and preparing some meals that he could just heat up. And my brother would go a couple of days a week and cut his grass and take care of anything around the house that needed to be done. Um, so we had a great plan in place. But because we both worked and I also had two teenagers at home, um, it was difficult to be there more. So we eventually had to put more things in place, like bring in added caregivers um, that would go during the days that my brother and I couldn't be there. And then we would go at nights or we would go on the weekends. So we worked very well as a team, but it does take its toll because there are things in your own life that are being neglected. Then my children were being neglected. um, My house was being neglected. Like you can only do so much. So it definitely, definitely, takes its toll on your personal life you know when when people have an illness you know you go to the doctor you go to the hospital there's something there's some hope they they can give you some medicine or treatment it seems that in this case it is just a downhill slide and, mm. and it's so it's so debilitating for both the person with the disease and and the family members um, talk about that kind of sense of hopelessness, if that's the word, where you just know that this is not going to have a good outcome. It is a sense of hopelessness. I remember the day that we took my dad to a neurologist and he administered a test to see what was going on because we had noticed he was forgetting and repeating and just not himself. So they gave him a test. And when the test results came back, he said, it's Alzheimer's disease. And my father was confused and I was confused. I didn't know a whole lot about Alzheimer's at the time. This was probably 15, 16 years ago. So 
I ran after the doctor when he left the office because I wanted to ask him, okay, well, what, what do we do? What's the cure? And I remember him saying there is no cure and it just progressively gets worse. It is, is going over time. It is going to just get progressively worse. Some people it's a fast decline. Some people it takes a long time. We don't know. Um, so he said, just put some care in place for him and just get ready because it's going to be a long road. So that sense of dread, uh, because you're right, other diseases, there, there is a possible cure. There's something that you can do to help. And with this, there wasn't. How do you, how do you deal with those cold, hard facts? I cried a lot. <sighs> Very hard. Um, to, sorry. That's all right. <sighs> to know that your loved one that you're so used to seeing in a certain light is going to decline. And as I did more research on it and found out what eventually happens, and the doctor actually told me to, he said, he's going to get to a point where he'll be incontinent. Um, and he also may get to the point where he won't know any of you. And that part just broke my heart because my brother and I were the light of his life. Yeah. And I just thought, how do we get to a point where he doesn't even know us? How, how does that happen? Um, so that was very, very difficult to deal with, knowing that that was what was going to be at the end. And I write a little bit in my book, and this is horrible, and I'm, I'm being honest and, and telling my true feelings here. I write a little bit in my book about how I prayed that my dad would pass away before we got to that point, because I just never wanted to see my father in a diaper, which is what the doctor had told us was going to be going to happen eventually. And I never wanted to see the day that my father would not know who I was. So I would rather just see him pass away peacefully and remember me. Yeah. You know, your father died in 2014. Yes. Uh, but two years later, you were still dealing with the trauma <sighs> that caused by the caregiver or caregiving. Um, it affected your eating, your sleep habits. You couldn't stop crying. You went to a counselor. You, you were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. um, the counselor suggested you write down your feelings to better understand them. Right. And from those writings, a friend suggested you write a book. Mm -hmm. Talk about that journey. So I did a couple years later. I, I'm still crying, still feeling guilty, angry that we went through this. Um, so I did eventually seek counseling. I had also sought counseling when I was going through the caregiving battle, but I thought, okay, it's over now. I'm going to be fine. And two years later, I still wasn't fine. Um, so I went to a counselor and she said, you are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I had heard of that from a, you know, a soldier point of view, but not from what I was going through. And she said, but just like a soldier fighting in a battle, you fought the battle of Alzheimer's for eight years. And during that time, you didn't have time to stop and think about the battle. You just had to go on day to day. Now that it's over, all the emotions are coming crashing down on you. So she suggested that I just start writing things down. So I started writing just some of the things that I felt, some of the happy moments, some of the very sad moments. And I kind of started piecing it together. And then, yes, a friend who was going through it with his father said, you know what, you should write a book. And I said, well, it's funny you say that because I kind of do have some ideas in mind for a book. So I thought, let me try and see if I can do that. And maybe it will help someone. Maybe someone reading it will say, yes, that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling guilt. I'm feeling impatience. I, I just don't feel like I can go on. Just to make someone feel 
normal because there were days I just didn't feel normal. I thought, why am I so impatient with him? He can't help it. But, you know, when you're talking to someone that's repeating the same thing over and over, you know, within a 10 minute time frame, they're asking you the same question. 10 times, it's hard to regain or retain your patience. So there were times that I grew impatient with him and it just writing all that down helped and having people then say to me, yes, that's how I'm feeling. And oh, thank you for making me feel normal. Yeah. You know, you told me that you began writing the book in 2016, but you stopped for like three years. Mm -hmm. What, What happened there? I found myself crying a lot. Um, I would start writing and the next thing I know, I would all the emotions would just come pouring out and I was reliving it again. And I thought, how is this helpful? I'm just, I'm going through the whole thing again. I need to put this away. So then I'd put it away and I'd bring it out and I'd say, okay, let me write something happy. Let me write about our ch- my childhood when I was growing up and how my dad used to be. And so then that would make me feel good again. And then I'd start writing some of the you know, the not so good things, I have to put it away again. So it was very therapeutic, but it was also very painful because I was reliving the whole eight years over again. Yeah. You know, it's becoming epidemic. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. estimates are that by 2050, 13 million Americans will have Alzheimer's. Um, And this might be a reason for that. Uh, Federal funding for research is lacking. For every $28,000 the government spends on care for Alzheimer's patients, it spends only $100 on research. How do we change that? Get involved as much as you can. Write to your congressman, congressman. Follow the developments in the National Institute of Health. I write to my congressman all the time. I tell them my story. Um, just get, make them aware um, you know, have interviews with newspapers so that people can put it out there that this is an epidemic, this is a problem. As the baby boomers are starting to get older, um, you know, my generation, many people are taking care of their parents, but we're going to be there soon. We're going to be at that age where we are going to start suffering ourselves. So it is an epidemic. It's something that we have to start thinking about, researching, finding a cure finding ways to help these caregivers. Yeah. You know, you, you've talked about being a caregiver and all the things that you uh, had to witness and experience in your conversations with other family members from other Alzheimer's patients, were they ever, excuse me, but were they able to tell you something that you hadn't experienced that they went through or, or is it, or is it kind of a common, you know, you've got to shop for them and watch them and, you know, just be their caregiver? The one thing I didn't experience that I thank God every day, um, I was told that many people experiencing Alzheimer's get very combative. Yeah. They get very mean. My father was the kindest man up until the very end. He was so appreciative. He was always thanking us. He was happy. Um, So I am so thankful. Even people that I follow on Instagram who are going through it, they're saying my mother is not the same. She's always yelling at us. She's not that same person. And my father remained the same happy, appreciative, kind-hearted person. So I am very lucky in that respect. Um, But basically, everybody 
he goes through the same thing, the repeating, the not able to care for themselves, not able to perform activities of daily living, their hygiene, paying bills, shopping. So it is a it's a lonely club that we're in um, of people just experiencing all the same things with this horrible disease. Yeah, I remember you telling me that at one point he couldn't distinguish between sunrise and sunset. Yeah, we would be out and the sun, you could see the sun setting and, you know, it's getting cooler and he'd say, oh, it's a beautiful morning. Or we would be out with our coats on taking a walk and he'd say, I just love the summer. And it's just mind boggling. You just stand there and look at this person and think, oh, my gosh, how does this happen? Yeah. It's just even though, you know, and you're researching the disease and you're trying to learn what you can, it's still so mind boggling that someone could not know something, something simple like what season it is or what time of the day it is. You know, I can reel off statistics about Alzheimer's, you know, until doomsday. Um, but, you know, you've lived all that. Mm-hmm. As you, you mentioned about your dad when he neared the end of his life. I mean, I remember you telling me. You visited him in his assisted living facility in Norristown, and you greeted him as you always did with a hug and a kiss. But at one point, it was a little different for you. Yeah. So I so I bent down. He was sleeping and I bent down and I gave him a hug and a kiss. And I said, hi, Dad, I'm here. And he opened his eyes and he looked at me and I was a total stranger. He had no idea who I was. He said, oh, hello. And I, I kept saying, Dad, it's me. And there was no recognition in his face. There was no smile that he always greeted with me with. And I, I say in my book that I felt like someone ripped out a piece of my heart because every time I walked in the room, it was like the sun came out for him. Yeah. And it was very painful. Yeah. Well, if there's a if there's a reason why we need more research dollars, I mean, that story is it. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine walking into a room and my parent doesn't recognize me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. How do you, kind of a silly question, but how do you, he does that and you're just there and he's looking at you like you're just like somebody that works at the hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It had to be emotionally devastating. It was horrible. I mean, I just continued the conversation and said, how's your day going? It's so nice to see you. And he was talking to me like I was this nice woman who was just there visiting him. Um, And a little bit later, maybe 10 minutes later, he started like recognition started to come back in his face again. And then a little bit as time went on, then he said, oh, hi, baby doll. He used to call me baby doll. Hi, baby doll. How are you today? And then the recognition started coming back. But that painful feeling of him not knowing me it was just awful. And I remembered the doctor telling me that, and this was at the end. So, and I knew the end was coming, but it was just my worst fear had come true. Yeah. Marianne, if there's a bit of advice you can give to caregivers for Alzheimer's patients, what would it be? Take care of yourself. Um, I experienced every symptom of caregiver burnout. There's a whole list of symptoms for caregiver burnout, and I had every single one. Um, You have to take care of yourself. You cannot take care of your loved one if you are not caring for yourself first. So it's okay to take a break. It's okay to say, I need to take a couple days and not be there for my loved one today. I need to regroup so that I can be fresh 
and go back and ready to fight this battle again. So it's okay to take care of yourself and you need to forgive yourself. Um, Like I said, the guilt of when you get impatient or you think, I just don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this caregiving anymore. It's taking such a toll on me. It's okay to feel that way. You're human. So you have to learn to forgive yourself. Yeah. Well, Marianne Scott, author of An Eight-Year Goodbye. Thanks for joining me today. Best of luck with the book. Uh, By the way, tell folks how they can purchase the book. So it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. um, It's on Google Play and iTunes. And I think it's in our local Barnes and Noble in Montgomeryville. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. You bet. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You can access our podcasts on Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And you can also get our informative award-winning content at, excuse me, theintel.com. That's intel2ls, couriertimes.com, and burlingtoncountytimes.com. Better yet, become a subscriber. It's only a dollar for the first six months, and you'll be keeping up with news in your communities and helping support local journalism in the process. For my partner, J.D. Mullane, who's on vacation, I'm Phil John Ficarra. Thanks for watching, and thanks for reading. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.